Good. We're going to return to the threefold space in some interesting ways, I think. This will be a preface to our meditation, so it won't be too long, but it won't be too short either. So recall from yesterday, external space, very obvious, internal space, the kind of private space, space of your own mind, and then the secret space or mysterious space, that which is not so obvious but can be very liberating, is the non-duality between the two. Well, it occurred to me that in the Pali Canon, going back to the, you know, let's say, foundational Buddhism, the Buddhist teachings to the that really orient around the Shravakayana, the pursuit of your own liberation, there was one of the most remarkable uh, encounters throughout his four, whole 45 years or so of teaching was when a wandering ascetic by the name of Bahia sought him out. It's a longer story there. It is interesting, but maybe just at your leisure, maybe on Sunday you might um, Google Bahia or Bahia Sutta if you're interested, just for the background. But right now you want to keep right to the to the practice itself, but Bahia traveled very, very long and very far to find the Buddha. Uh, he was, had an intense longing for liberation, and he sought him out, and when he found him, he was very, what you say, almost pushy, but I would say not really pushy, but just enormously enthusiastic and had a sense of urgency that he really wanted to receive the teachings from the Buddha to, to become liberated. And so he sought him out, and the, and the third time, and the first two times he came to the Buddha when, he was on, 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 when the Buddha was on his alms round. And the Buddha said, not just now, I'm, I'm on my alms round. You know, like, cool it a little bit. But the third time he, he came, and the third time Bahia said to the Blessed One or to the Bhagavan, but it is hard to know, he was afraid he might be turned down for a third time perhaps, but it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the bless, Blessed One's life or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me the Dharma, O Blessed One. Teach me the Dharma. O well-gone one, Sugata, that will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. So this time then the Buddha acknowledged that he's accepted his request and he gave him teaching here that I can see is just eight lines. That was the complete teaching of the Buddha to Bahia. And so now it's time to listen very well. It's very short. Then by here, you should train yourself thus. That is, if, you're, if you really are looking for your long-term welfare and your bliss, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. And that is what you pick up with your tactile sense. Yes? Touch. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. So what you mentally apprehend. That is how you should train yourself. When for you, there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. There, when there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, 
is the end of suffering. Full teaching. Through hearing this brief explanation of the Dharma from the Blessed One, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth, because he was an ascetic, wore bark, the mind of Bahia of the bark cloth right there and right then and there was released from the defilements through lack of clinging and grasping, having exhorted Bahia of the bark cloth, bark cloth with this brief explanation of the Dharma, the Blessed One left. It says a little bit later on that with that one eight-line paragraph, Bahia, by the end of the teaching, achieved not only stream enter, it became an arhat. It became an arhat. He heard the teachings, and he went through stream enter, once returner, non-returner, arhat, just like a fast express train, right through. So he was liberated by the end of the talk. So within this context of the Shravagyana, really seeking nirvana, seeking nirvana, seeking dhammadhatu. Nirvana is dhammadhatu. It is the ultimate ground. Um, he was one of those simultaneous individuals. Now, they don't use that terminology, but that's exactly what he was. He didn't go off and meditate for some time, but he, gave, he received the talk, and boom, he was completely liberated. Let's just look, well, and, but then that sense of urgency of his. He said, who knows what's going to happen to you? Who knows what's going to happen to me? Please, give me the teaching. He's really urgent. What happened? Not long after the Blessed One's departure, Bahia, attacked by a cow with a calf, lost his life. He was gored. He was gored, and he died. Just a matter of a few days. Then the Blessed One, having gone for, al for alms in Savati, after the meal, returning from his alms round with a large number of monks, saw that Bahia had died. On seeing him, he said to the monks, take Bahia's body and place it on a litter, and carrying it away, cremate it, and then build a memorial. Your companion in the holy life has died. It's an utterly remarkable story. So now let's just look at this, this eight lines. It won't be long, because this is so short. I would be messing it up if I really cluttered it with a lot of talk. But I think if we go through it just once, to my mind, there is a very powerful parallel here with outer space, inner space, secret space. Let's see whether I'm just projecting this. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In other words, as you're attending to the visual appearances, see just what is there with no superimpositions. And clearly that means no labeling, because they're not out there. They're what we impute upon the appearances. And then, ever so importantly, no reification. And then more specifically, in this translation, I've seen at least three translations of this paragraph, of the whole sutta. In this particular interpretation of it, which is very good, I'm sure, it's my Tandasaru Bhikkhu, is an excellent translator. He is saying that when you see in the scene, you there is just the scene, you don't see yourself, your ego, Atman, self in the scene. Neither the scene of your own body. You look in the reflection of a mirror. You don't. You don't. There's no person there. As you gaze, for example, into into a mirror, and you see the reflection, there's no person there. It's not a person. Okay, or you look at the visual images of your body, just looking at it straight. There's no person there. Right? In the scene, let there be just the scene, with no superpositions. In the herd, let there be just the herd. No superposition of I, of mine. 
in the sense, now it gets very close, up close and personal, in that which you tactily experience, in the sense, there will be just the sensed. That is, these are just, and so a lot of you had this experience to some taste, to some extent. In other words, this is not way, way up there. Some bogakai and that very ancestor. This is where we live, right? In the sensed, in the tactily sensed, somatically sensed, there is just the sensed. You're not in there. There's nobody in there. There's no person. There's no mind. It's just let there be the sense with no projection, no reification of I or mine. And then finally getting very intimate where we think we really live. Let us say that that which is seen, that which is heard, that which is tactily sensed, that's outer space. That's outer space, right? Yeah, I'm seeing it out there. I'm hearing it out there. I can see my body. I can see my body. It's out there. I can see most of it. I see all but my head. You can even see my nose. You know? It's out there, right? So that's all out there, out there in external space. But now, now let's, but you, you just see the outer me. You just see what I'm presenting to the world, but I'm going to look inside. Whoa. My thoughts, my memories, my personal history, my aspirations, my mental afflictions, my embarrassments, my, 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 my. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. They are just what they are. Emotions are just emotions. Thoughts are just thoughts. Memories are just memories. But there's no me in there. And there's nothing intrinsically mine. So, when for you there will be, there will be only the seen in reference to the seen, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then by here, there is no you in terms of that. That's the outer space. In terms of that, which appears, the visual, the, the, the auditory, the tactile, there's no you in, in terms of that. And then when you see that, when you apprehend that, when you ascertain that, when there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there, external space, right? And, but that includes, when he says that, that's also referring to all four of them, right? When you say there's no you there, well, let's just stick for the time being with visual, auditory, and tactile. But there's no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here in the cognized nor yonder out there in the objective nor in between the two. That in between the two is also empty. This just this is the end of suffering. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say, well, it looks like outer space, inner space, and then the secret space is where there is liberation, and that's where nirvana is. Just this, this, just this, is the end of suffering. Now, this is really practical. We're going to do the, do the practice in a few minutes. But now we don't need to go, wow, I can't do this. I don't, I haven't, I don't really understand emptiness. I don't know my yamaka. I haven't studied that. I don't know the nature of dharmakaya and quite relationship with sambhogakaya and nimanakaya. It's all very well. That all comes with time. This is where we live, right? In the visual, we can see there's just the visual, the sound, the tactile. And then just, as we've had now, close to getting on to five weeks, of just in the settling the mind in its natural state. They're just thoughts. They're just emotions. They're just memories. They're just images. They're desires, emotions, and so forth. They are what they are. They are nothing more than what they are. They're not me, and they're not intrinsically mine. And we get a real taste of that. It's not that difficult, right? And that's when you're looking into inner space. And then you see, I'm not out there, and I'm not in here. Oh, freedom. 
powerful. And I've seen another translation of the same sutta. And I've seen three translations. Each one of them is quite different. It's quite interesting because it's a matter of interpretation. Translators are always interpreters to some degree. And the translations I've read are by very competent translators. But another one, another translator said, having gone through the, the seen, the heard, the felt, the cognized, he said, there is no thing out there. There's no thing out there. And seeing there's no thing out there, you see there's no thing in here, and therefore there's no thing in between, and the very absence of that, seeing that, that's liberation. So that could be seen a bit more broadly than simply I, but any kind of reified entity out there, in here, in between, no. Welcome to emptiness. Polycanon. Another interpretation by a really good translator. But this is the one I came, came upon this afternoon. So I'm front-loading the whole meditation. I'm not sure. I probably won't speak. Well, maybe I'll speak a tiny bit, but very little when we come to the actual meditation. But now that we've gone to the polycanon, I love the, just like a number of you are balancing earth and sky, you know, kind of the two extremes, the like the supine position, you know, you know like full body awareness, for example, mindful, uh, a sangha approach to mindfulness of breathing. There on the one hand, and maybe then you're going off to awareness of awareness or merging mind with space. So you're taking the two, the two endpoints, right? They're not extreme, but the, two, the bandwidth. You're taking there and there, earth and sky, and then balancing these two. Well, in a way then, in my reading of the Pali Canon generally, and especially suttas like that, it's earth. It's grounded right where we live. It's not complicated. It's not philosophical. It's not esoteric. It's not metaphysical. It's just boom, right back to your experience. What you can actually direct your attention to and know you're doing it. Right? Not that difficult. And certainly not conceptual. Not all bunch of, I don't know, intellectual gobbledygook. You know? Ground. Say, I can do that. Some of those things may be too difficult, but that one, heck, who can say I can't do that? You know? And now holding that, holding the ground, now let's go to the sky. Dzogchen. Dzogchen approach to the three spaces. And let's go to somebody who really knows what she's talking about. And this is Sarah Kondo. I've referred to her earlier. And I'm going to find her. There she is. She was, as you might recall, she was the consort of the fifth son of Dujung Lingba. His name was Time Öser, stainless ray of light. He was an accomplished my, uh, treasure revealer himself, but she was also. It was quite a dynamic duo, quite extraordinary. She was really an accomplished being. Um, and she became quite renowned in her own right. Her, her con consort, Time Öser, uh, died fairly shortly after the two of them really joined in their relationship. But she lived on and uh, was quite renowned, living out there in, I think it was Amdo, Kam Amdo, that area. Uh, she was taken into a branch of Sera Monastery. Sera Monastery, that's where she lived. And so she was called Sera Kondo, or the Dakini from Sera, right? But a really accomplished adept in her own right. Uh, and again, exactly part of this Dujum, uh, Dujum Lingba lineage. And you might recall also that she was a, a very perhaps even the primary guru or a major, major guru of Chajal Rinpoche. Chajal Rinpoche is that 100-year-old yogi living in Nepal. You, you'll recall him. So strong connection there. So in her definitive commentary to one of the five mind treasures of Dujum Lingba, the one that's already been well translated, 
by Richard Barron, Buddhahood Without Meditation. Um, and I retranslated it, not because I thought he'd done a bad job, I think he did a very good job, but I wanted, but Rinpoche, my, my lama, encouraged me to translate the, her commentary. And I couldn't translate her commentary without, I could either, either take his, which is plagiarism, or that is Richard Barron's translation, or just translate it all over again. So I did kind of the only thing that was feasible. I translated it all over again. And of course, one likes one's own translation. If you don't, you shouldn't translate at all. And so I translated her commentary, and, it, and exactly then it comes to her, her explanation now with this lineage. It's the Dujom, line, Dujom Lingba lineage through her, this extraordinary yogini, um, Sarakando. And so this is what she has to say. In this regard, there are three aspects in terms of the threefold space. External space, internal space, and secret, inconceivable space. Now we're in Dzogchen context, okay? As for external space, all phenomena included in the vast outer physical worlds, worlds, notice, it's plural, the multitudes of inner animate sentient, sentient inhabitants, so the beings who populate these multiple worlds, and as I suggested, one world for sentient being. And then the well-displayed intervening appearances of the five senses, that is, that which arises to our senses. And then your own body, aggregates, your psychophysiological aggregates, the sense domains, and that is the 18 sense domains, and elements. So, in other words, everything, the whole, all of Buddhist phenomenology, and all the mental functions and appearances of ordinary sentient beings are external space, or is it one one can say they're all present in external space. So now external space then is including your own mind. I mean, it's really kind of all-encompassing. I would say as an interpretation, I think it's pretty safe that as she's defining external space in this context, external space is relative dhammadhatu. Among the 18 datus, you remember, there's six datus pertaining to the six uh, modes of consciousness. So the visual datu is the visual domain, auditory domain, and then we have the, the domain of phenomena, and that corresponds directly to mental consciousness. But of course, we can be mentally conscious of all of the six domains. So the, the relative dhammadhatu, the domain of phenomena, includes all this stuff, right? The visual, auditory, all the way through to the, including the mental. That's why she says mental functions and so forth. So the dhammadhatu is really the space of awareness, all-inclusive of all six domains. The other ones have their own niche. That's visual, but it's not auditory, and so forth. But the Dhammadhatu encompasses all, includes all six. It's its own, your own uniquely mental domain, but also everything that we, as I'm attending to your, to your shawl, I see it visually, but I all get it, also get it mentally, with mental consciousness. Okay? So, so it seems to be that it's quite clearly equating external space with a space of awareness. And that's, well, look around in any direction. In, inside or outside, it's all outside, external space. Okay? So there's starters. Now, what are you going to do for internal space? If, as she says, it includes your mental function, the space of mental functions and so forth. That's thoughts, images, memories, and all of that. Uh, well, then where's inside? Well, she's going to get to that. Don't be impatient. Okay? And so... So that, that's all external space, or all those, those are all the phenomena populating external space. Once this has been determined by way of authentic teachings of the jinas, the Buddhas, 
the authentic pith instructions of the sublime guru and your own authentic pristine awareness, once you've ascertained this, the nature of this external space, based upon the teachings of the Buddhas themselves, your own guru, where it gets personal instruction, and your own authentic pristine awareness, the true realization of the manner in which they do not exist and are not established as real, that is inherently real, inherently existent, is internal space. Yeah, that one's, that one's a, it's a full sentence. And I will unpack it. So she just gave him external space. She says, now, to de- so once this has been t- determined, because uh, I know what these words are because I translated them, so I know what the Tibetans are. That gives me a lot of confidence. That's why I also like to deal with my own translations. Once this has been determined, determined it's ascertained. You've nailed it. You've got it, right? By, on the basis of what? Authentic teachings of the jinas. Jinas is simply an epithet, means the victorious ones, the conquerors, the Buddhas. Right? They've conquered all their obscurations. So there's one. That's one way. That's one basis for really getting it and ascertaining what's the nature of this external space. Secondly, by way of the authentic pith instructions, the core practical instructions of the Supreme Guru, and then your own authentic pristine awareness. Now this is totally an inside job, getting it from your own ground. Once that's been determined in those three ways, the true realization of the manner in which they do not exist and are not established as real is internal space. So it's loaded, but it's not complicated. The way in which they do not exist. Well, she just gave, she referred to all the appearances in the space of awareness. And how do they appear? How does everything appear? As if it's existing from its own side. You know, I mean, it's so obvious. I look over at Jim. Jim seems to be totally there. Absolutely from his own side. Everything seems to be its own side. And not only external, but internally. I'm really in here. I'm, this is my mind. This is my consciousness, my memories. They're really here, inside here. That's how things appear. Wherever they're appearing, objectively or, subject, or subjectively, they appear to be there by their own nature. right? And that's exactly how they don't exist. That's why it's called delusive appearances. This is still a commentary to viewing all delusive appearances. You remember? Delusive appearances as manifestations of, of the four kayas. But you see that they are delusive. They see, you see that you're appearing that way, and I know you don't exist that way. I know that you're not real in the sense of existing by your own inherent nature, independent of context, independent of conceptual designation. And that knowing of how phenomena don't exist is internal space. In other words, what's that? that knowing of the non-inherent nature, that is to say, the knowing of the emptiness of all those phenomena of external space, that's internal space. It's an inside realization. The realization of the indivisibility of external space and internal space in which luminosity and emptiness are indivisible as the one taste of your own pristine awareness, the great Dhammakaya, is the secret inconceivable space. Like each of those words weighs about a ton. It's incredible. the indivisibility of external space and internal space, and then she glosses that. 
in which luminosity and emptiness are indivisible. What she's saying there, I think quite clearly, extra, she referred to all those phenomena, the physical world, sentient beings, uh, the sensory appearances, and then mental functions, and all, just gave a nice sampling of all the kinds of stuff that appears. Well, that word appears is nothing other than an expression of the luminosity of primordial consciousness. Everything that appears is appearing because it's illuminated at it from the ground, at its most essential, from primordial consciousness. Right? So appearances, luminosity, tomatoes, tomatoes. You know? And so that's what we're picking up when we look out. And when we look out to our minds also, the Mickey Mouse above my head, the thoughts, the memories, the images that come to mind, wherever they come to mind, whether you... You project them out into the visual domain or you project them out into... Can you see a thumb? Any thumb come to mind? Projecting the image of a thumb on a, on a sound, you know? Mentally, project, we do that all the time. We hear, we, and a truck comes to mind. A truck comes to mind and it's, that image of a truck is superimposed upon the sound. It happens all the time. We smell something, a very distinct smell of some sort. And what comes to mind that we impute upon this? Oh, cinnamon, oh, bacon, oh, dog dirt, whatever it is, you know. But all these associations coming to mind, we're projecting all over the place. That's the luminosity. All those appearances to the senses, all the appearances to the mind, that's the luminosity. But then to see them for what they are, they are empty appearances. That's the emptiness. To see how they don't exist, although they appear to exist from their own side, knowing that they don't exist, and by what means, with what mind do you ascertain this? When, this is deep into the Dzogchen text. This has gone way, way into the Dzogchen text already. This is not just at the beginning. With what awareness are you ascertaining the emptiness of all those appearances? Rikpa, she says it. The realization of the indivisibility of external space and internal space in which luminosity and emptiness are indivisible. Not only indivisible, that would simply be the realization of emptiness, right? That would just be the realization of emptiness. But in which they are indivisible as the one taste of your own pristine awareness, as the one taste equally arising as the effulgences, the expressions, the creative displays, of Rikpa. So it's not just realization of emptiness. You do see them simultaneously, luminosity and emptiness, indivisible. But it's not just that. You're seeing that indivisibility of emptiness and luminosity, emptiness and appearances, as being of one taste, as effulgence of your own pristine awareness, which is none other than the great Dhammakaya, Buddha mind. That's the secret inconceivable space. So, as I was reflecting upon this, I wanted to give you something really juicy. Then I thought, the Heart Sutra. Straight from the Heart Sutra. Zuk Tombao, 
You know it. Many of you know it. Zuktombo. Form is emptiness. Or form is empty. Tomanyik zukso. Emptiness is form. Zukle tomanyik zemai. Emptiness is not other than form. Tomanyik le kyang zuk zemayino. And form is also none other than emptiness. That's straight mayana, perfection of wisdom. That's being in the midst of a non-lucid dream, in the midst of a non-lucid dream, and seeing that the forms are empty, and that the emptiness of your substrate is nothing other than those forms. Those forms are, sim those, those forms are empty. The emptiness is formed. They are non-dual. They're not separate things slapped together. They are already of the same nature. That's being in the midst of a non-lucid dream, seeing, knowing, directly realizing. They appear to be there from their own side, and I know they are not. I see that they are not. Right? That's a very cool insight into emptiness within the context of a non-lucid dream. But then when you perceive that same reality from the perspective of a waking consciousness, again, this is the an analogy, when you see that same non-duality of appearances and emptiness, the luminosity and emptiness, right? when you see that from the perspective of waking consciousness, in other words, you're lucid, you know the dream as the dream, then you not only apprehend the non-duality, the indivisibility of emptiness and form, but you also realize that non-duality of emptiness and form as being none other than displays of your own awareness. And that limited context of a lucid dream, of course, that awareness is your own substrate consciousness. It's a private show. It's your dream. It's not anybody else's dream. Right? Powerful parallel, though. Incredibly powerful parallel. It becomes all the clearer. If it wasn't already 100% clear, we should be getting pretty close to 100% clear in terms of the power of the analogy of being in the midst of a non-lucid dream and knowing the emptiness of all the phenomena, subjective and objective, and still operating from within the context of the dream and not knowing it's a dream. Right? Still operating from the context of, conventionally speaking, relatively speaking, I am this person in the dream. I'm not reifying myself. I'm not deluded. I know it's merely convention. I know it's only relational. I know it's only conceptually designated. But after all, that's who I am conventionally speaking, and stopping there. You're still not lucid, because as far as you know, this is, all, this is all there is to you. And that is, you're this person in the dream, right? Until something happens. And one of you had this dream. I loved it. I hadn't heard this before. You actually come, somebody appears in your dream. This happened to one of you. Somebody appears to you in the dream and says, this is a dream, you know. And when that person heard that, became lucid. It's very nice to have good spiritual friends in your dream. Because that was the catalyst. That was the catalyst. Didn't have to have a sandal smacking you in the face. Didn't have to study Madhyama. Didn't have to study Dzogchen. This is a dream, you know. And the bottom falls out. The bottom falls out. You've broken through. That's tech. You've broken through, not even conventionally, 
are you any longer identifying with little dreamed persona? You see, that's just one more empty appearance. Because now you're viewing everything from a totally different dimension of consciousness. You're lucid. And you have and the beauty of that, and some of you have had lucid dreams, but one of the beauties of that is that when you're viewing the dream from the perspective of being awake while dreaming, you have access to all the knowledge that you have while you're in the waking state, which is very cool. You have transpersonal knowledge. It's trans, the knowledge of that little persona in the dream who might be 30, 30 minutes old and will die in five minutes. You know, that little that little blip, that little wave on the surface of the ocean, of that little dream persona. Long dream, 35 minutes. That's your lifespan, baby, and that's it. Then you go, down to the substrate. But during that little blip, that little 30-minute dream or whatever, to have access to your knowledge for the years of your life and to be able to apply that knowledge within the dream. Maybe you've read Stephen LeBerge's books and Dream Yoga books and Padmasambhava and Dream Yoga and so forth and so on. All of that now you have at your fingertips. All that knowledge you acquired while you were in the waking state over the last year and five years, 20 years, 30 years, as long as you've been studying and so forth. All of that, you have that right there. Bring it right into the dream. Everybody else in the dream, unless they happen to be lucid too, they're operating out of a much smaller data bank because they're only 30 minutes old. They have not had much time to accumulate a lot of knowledge. You're coming in like an omniscient one into the dream, unless you encounter somebody who's lucid before you. So, so you see the parallel, you know? the parallel. It's quite, quite amazing. Two different ways, at least, of interpreting the Bahia talk. See this just in terms of your own personal identity. Not out there, not in here, not in between, nowhere. Ah, I'm free. Realization of personal identity-lessness. Knowing how you don't exist and thereby being free. Or the interpretation like in the, in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra. Form, as well as all the other skandhas, all the other appearances, they are empty. Emptiness is manifesting as those forms. And apart from the forms, there's no separate autonomous Emptiness out there someplace, the void, nowhere to be found. But apart from emptiness, there are no forms either. To realize that is freedom. But to realize that from the perspective of Rikpa, that's more than freedom. That's awakening. Emaho. Please find a comfortable position. Let this be a silent session. I think you know what to do. That was a lot of front-loading, so we don't need to record this.
Hola. So we return to the text. I think it's time to move on to the next aphorism. And the, the kind of the label or the classification for this aphorism is a, a special practice for accumulating merit and purifying obscurations. And so the aphorism reads, the best of methods is to have four practices. And so the first of these, I won't read them all four right now, we'll just go through them one by one. So the first of the four practices is accumulate merit. And that is engage in virtue. Virtue with your body, virtue with your speech, virtue with your mind, wholesome behavior. Uh, I think we have a pretty good idea what virtue is. So this is a means to develop beneficial habitual propensities which nurture one's spiritual maturation. And that is just as we're, we're creatures of habit. William James, again, wrote quite brilliantly about the nature of habit uh, and how we are definitely creatures of habit. I think we all know that. Uh, but it's also important to emphasize that we're not only creatures of bad habits. We can create, if we do something that is unhelpful, unwholesome, non-virtuous, uh, do it once, do it twice, three times, but the time three times is a habit. But it's the same too. There's a symmetry here, and that is we can also develop just very wholesome habits. Uh, we can see that. It's all over the place. The, the Thai staff, the, the people who work here, uh, they have a very wholesome habit. They see you and they smile. You know, it's a habit. It doesn't mean that it's not sincere. It just means that that's their natural response. They see you and they smile, right? And then, adikap, adika, if you're a woman. Right? And so, do that. Develop habits. Develop really good habits. That's the first, first of the four. That's easy. Hmm. And just read the notes. Counteract mundane hopes and fears by yearning that all situations, agreeable and disagreeable, may lead you to spiritual awakening. So it's again, it's a habit. So that's that. I'm being a little bit concise now. So there's the first one. The second one of these four practices is purify vices. Any so sins, vices, unwholesome behavior, non-virtuous behavior, when we engage in something deliberately with the body, speech, or mind, and we look back upon it retrospectively and see that was wrong, and we don't need to have moralism coming from outside, we're not infallible in this regard, but there are certainly occasions when we know, just in terms of our own conscience, I shouldn't have done that. That was really harmful. Negative karma. And there it is, but it's done. What can I do? And then we can, we can feel, oh, kind of helpless. Oh, no. Now in the Buddhist worldview, and in a lot of worldviews, I've done something wrong. I lied to somebody. I stole. I was abusive. I was contemptuous and spoke out of contempt to someone. Maybe even physical harm, whatever it may be. And we look back and say, oh, what can I do? Because those seeds now of any voluntary act, any deliberate action, are their seeds, their sapun, their seeds, and they are stored now in your mind, in your mind stream, in that continuum of consciousness, or in that field of energy that goes along with it, the jiva. And one may, you may wonder if the laws of karma are, are true, and that is, as you sow, so shall you reap. You've just done something really negative. You've just poured some toxin into your world probably influences other people as well, but it's definitely going on in your mind stream, not other people's mind stream. What can you do about it? And there is something you can do about it. It's called applying the four remedial powers. That is, the seeds are there, but the really good news is that you can burn the seeds. You can burn the seeds. You can't make them turn into nothing, but just like you can hold a match under a seed, like a, a, seed, a seed of any kind of seed, an apple seed, you can hold, them, hold a match under it until... At the end, there's still something in between your fingers, but you could plant that in the soil and give it all the mulch you like and never grow because it burned, it's torched. 
And so similarly, those seeds of negative karma that we've stored, you know, uh, they can be torched. So it's not as if you never did them at all, but they don't have the power. They will not have the power to give rise to very unfortunate mm, consequences. So how do we go about these? What are these four remedial powers? I'm just going to go through them quickly. There's lots of material out there on the Internet and many, many books that deal with this. But the first one is simply to look with remorse upon the deed. And one wants to be rather careful there. It's not looking upon yourself with remorse. I'm such a terrible person. I wish I weren't such a terrible person. Because that, that's, that's inescapable. If I'm a terrible person, then what can I do? I mean, suicide maybe, but I don't know. That doesn't like, look like that works out very well. And so the remorse is not directed towards yourself as an evil person or like that. The remorse is it's a laser. It's fo focusing on the action. And of course, we're responsible for the action. We per perpetrated the action. But the remorse is to the action. A genuine sense of regret, of remorse. I wish I had not committed that. That was harmful. I know it. It's harmful for myself, very possibly harmful for others, harmful in the near term, harmful in the long term. Uh, I really regret, really regret. That already, just the opposite of rejoicing. Do something, let's say something wholesome. Do something really virtuous. And then afterwards, rejoice in it. And, this not, and again, it's not self-congratulation. Oh, what a jolly good fellow am I. It's, oh, what a jolly good deed was that. You know, it's taking delight in something truly virtuous. Oh, well done. I'm so glad I did that. And by that very rejoicing in your own virtue, hopefully, like when you go home, hopefully you'll look back upon this time as being mostly virtuous from your own side. And you can look back on this time here where you've been having not much to do besides practice dharma. And if, if this is true, I hope it is, and, you know, six months from now, you look back on these two months say, oh, that was so good, that was so meaningful, I'm so glad I had that time to cultivate my mind, develop loving-kindness, compassion, and so forth. Oh, I'm so glad I did that. In that very rejoicing, you're empowering the virtue. You're, in, you're strengthening the seeds of virtue that are stored in your mind stream by looking back on them with rejoicing. In other words, you can actually empower them even after the whole show is over. Right? That's very good. So it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. And in a similar way, as you can empower seeds, you can also disempower them. And you can do the same thing with virtuous. If you look back, if you, get, if you were very generous with someone, truly generous, and then you look back and say, oh, geez, I didn't need to be that generous. Ay, caramba, I could have used that money for myself, and I gave it to that person. What am I doing? Then that virtuous seed, you're burning it. You're burning it. I mean, the person still got some benefit, but in terms of your benefit, you took out a blowtorch on that seed, you get nothing. You know, have enough remorse, you'll burn it right to a crisp. It'll have no, no power to give you any benefit. And so there's a great symmetry here. So enough on that remorse. And then resolve to turn away from the misconduct. Okay, that was the past, but now looking to the present and the future, this is all important. We all know this. Just in, If somebody apologizes, they're really rude to you, and they, they come to you afterwards and say, I'm very, very sorry. I don't know what got into me. I was just, being, I'm, I'm a, I was just acting like a jerk, and I'm really sorry. That's meaningful if and only if the person is not going to do it again. Or, you know, the abusive alcoholic husband, oh, I'm sorry, sweet, I didn't mean to beat you yesterday, I'm really, really sorry, and then get drunk the next night and does it all over again. The sorry doesn't mean anything. We all know that, yeah? So the sorry is good. That's a good first step. I'm very sorry. I'm deeply regretful for what I did. But that's purifying if and only if it's accompanied with, I'll do my absolute best. And this is in terms of behavior, right? Behavior, body, speech, and my behavior. Strong resolve from that type of behavior I will abstain in the future. I'll do my absolute best. Hmm. 
And some things, like if one commits adultery, your absolute best is you simply never do it again, period, no discussion. That's it. Because that's one of those things you really, it doesn't happen in a split second. If one wants to commit adultery, that takes some planning. And so you just see if there's any impulse in that direction, you just, the guillotine comes down on it. Absolutely not. This is not negotiable. You know? And so, but again, one can be self-defeating here if one gets upset. Upset at somebody being, somebody else is rude or somebody did something you didn't like, you get upset. Just kind of your mind gets agitated. And then afterwards you feel, maybe you didn't even do anything except for your mind got agitated. Then if you go to that person and said, I'm so sorry I got agitated, I'll never get agitated and again in the future. You're lying to them. But that's not it. We're not, we're not, how do you say, the four immediate powers are towards action. Mental afflictions are bound to come up until you're an arhat. You know? And you can feel some remorse for them, but you don't resolve, you don't, tri you don't fool yourself or anybody else thinking, I'll never experience anger again. So sorry, never experience anger again. No more craving. Sorry, I, I did some craving. Won't do that again. That's nonsense. Right? But the action coming out of it, that is clearly non-virtue, that we can make a strong resolve and then keep to it. The power of the support or the reliance is if your unwholesome deed, your non-virtuous deed, is towards your object of refuge. In the context of Buddhism, towards Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, to your guru, you do something, you look back and say, that was really wrong. Then you, you purify it with the power of the support by taking refuge. If your action that was very harmful was towards sentient beings, then you purify that by cultivating compassion. Those are the two. And then finally, in order to purify the toxic seeds uh, from the unwholesome action, then engage in purifying practices. So in the Vajrayana context, it could be Vajrasattva practice, it's classic, but it can also be the cultivation of loving kindness or compassion, or frankly, engaging any virtue at all. The Buddha said this himself, and that is when you engage in virtue, by the very fact of engaging in virtue, you're already burning seeds of non-virtue. So that's really good news. You know? Every act of virtue is already counteracting some negative imprints there. It's, it's kind of obvious logically that if we had to experience all the seeds of all the karma we've ever committed, there wouldn't be any time. We would, we'd have galaxies full of unripened karma, and there'd never be any chance to experience the fruit because we keep on accumulating more karma. Just be like going into cosmic galactic, super galactic debt. There'd be never enough time to experience all the results if they all just compounded. But they don't. There's a lot of cancellation taking place. So do something really hostile, that'll burn up a whole bunch of virtuous. Big, one thing you want to avoid is, don't get really pissed off and hateful towards a bodhisattva. Not a good idea. Really bad idea. You know? um, be angry at your toenails. Find some kind of a neutral topic. Well, I hate toenails. If you have to be angry at something, bodhisattva, not such a good idea. So they, there's a lot of cancellation there. So to cancel your negative, engage in a lot of virtue. That's the third one. There's a lot more, but I have to say I'm kind of eager to get to the, to the next one. And you'll have no idea why until I start unpacking it. The next one is make offerings to spirits. Make offerings to spirits. Now, if you don't make offerings to spirits, does this mean you'll never become enlightened? don't think so. I don't think it's that crucial. But it is there. Make offerings to spirits. So... Spirits, ghosts. We don't have a whole lot of words for them. Spirits, ghosts, in English, spirits, ghosts, pretty well. I mean, you say demon, that's already pretty heavy. Not, it's not the same. Whereas in 
traditional Hindu culture, Buddhist culture, and pretty much cultures all over the planet, everybody except for modern, modern society, and where there's strong influence of science and scientific materialism, which is way beyond science, um, everybody else seems to have a much richer vocabulary. Tibetans, I mean, I know the, I know the vocabulary. Man, it's vast. I think they have as, as many words for different types of spirits as particle physicists have for elementary particles. You know. Tibetans have pretty much one, duten tamo chame, a partless, subtle particle. And that's it, kind of the fundamental constituents of the physical universe. Partless in the sense that they have no spatial dimension. And so, but already in physics, the, when I studied physics 25 years ago, they said electrons have no spatial dimension. They're just a, a mathematical point with a charge and spin and all of that, but they're not this, this wide. They, they don't... Recently, I've read they may be tiny, tiny. But photons, for example, there's an elementary particle of energy. I don't think it has any spatial dimension at all. But then if we look at other elementary particles, man, we have a whole bunch of them, you know? So in modern physics, we have as, uh, maybe as many names for elementary particles as Buddhists do ha have for spirits. And the Buddhists have only one word for elementary particle, you know, an elementary particle. And we pretty much have, you know, spirits. So what we attend to becomes our reality. And if you're really attending to spirits, then you see a wide variety of them. And if you're not attending elementary particles, you just say, well, elementary particle. But if you're really looking at elementary particles, then you go a whole bunch of elementary particles, each with its own label. But when it comes to spirits, eh, spirits. So I'm already getting very interested. So spirits, do they or don't they exist at all? In America, polls have been done, and I, don't, I didn't check out this time uh, just exactly what the numbers are, but a ma majority of Americans right now believe in ghosts, spirits. Majority do. And I imagine maybe a little bit less percentage in Europe, but I'm sure there are a lot of Europeans that, that believe in spirits and ghosts. Um, and then in traditional cultures, pretty much all of them do. Go down to you know, heart of Brazil and Indonesia and... Mongolia, and so forth and so on. China, China, big time, lots of spirits there. So pretty much everybody else does. But even in America, so a big modern country like that, most people believe in spirits and ghosts. And scientists are interested in reality. I mean, if you're not, you're not a scientist. And so one might think, well, gosh, so many, and they're, they're not all stupid. I mean, most Americans, if they can't, most of them can't be less than average IQ by definition. You can't have most less than average. And so that means it's going to be some not so intelligent, some medium, and they're, they're just bound to be statistically a lot of very intelligent Americans that believe in spirits and ghosts. So one would think if, if you're an open-minded scientist, you want to know the nature of reality, you might say, gosh, there are, are millions of intelligent Americans who believe in ghosts. Uh, maybe we should find out why. Because they didn't kind of just sit in their room and say, I think of ghosts, I believe ghosts. They have to have some reason. Now, maybe it's the Bible, but maybe it's many, many accounts of people saying they see, they've seen ghosts. And so is there any, any empirical evidence? Can that be studied? Because uh, many people say they can see them. Not only in America, but elsewhere. I know somebody in, in, in India. He said, I saw a ghost. Clearly, I saw it. And he was a Dalai Lama's physician. So one would think that, that there would be a whole ghostology. You know, a field of natural science, kind of looking... We want to see whether, you know, just like scientists studied the ether back in the 19th century, it was quite okay to study the ether. In fact, well, who was his name? Lord Kelvin said there's one thing of which we are absolutely certain, and that is the existence of the substantial ether. 
And that was quite, quite okay. He was, you know, very, very eminent scientist, brilliant man. He said, this is one thing we're absolutely certain of, the ether. And the ether is that which actually ripples when light goes through it. It's a luminiferous ether. And that would account for the fact that light traveling through empty space actually has wave, wave properties. Because something's rippling, just like water, like waves in water or, and so forth. Waves in a solid. One thing we're absolutely certain of is the ether. And so they tried to study it until a couple named Michelson and Morley did study it and found out it didn't exist at all. And it was really a definitive study. And from that point, that which the physicists had been most certain of suddenly became non-existent. And then that opened the way for Einstein to come along and say, well, there's a really good reason that ether isn't there. And you know, we have a revolution in physics. So it was okay to study the ether. And phlogiston and caloric and other things that scientists have believed in and found didn't exist at all. But then there's something that most Americans believe in, and the scientists won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Or as I like to say, uh, a scientist wouldn't be caught dead studying ghosts until they're dead. And then they can study ghosts. So there's a, per, a kind of a cute... This, I'm going to be ch chatting for the next 10 minutes because I just think it's so cool. <laughs> this is probably not going to help your practice a lot, but I'm sorry, you, you can leave if you like, but I'm really enjoying this. <laughs> that, you know, if you're a theist, if you're a theist and you believe in heaven, uh, then you find out about whether you... You, know, you can bank your life on it. Bet your life on it. That you know, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. So you, we're all betting our lives on something. That's something you can bet, but you won't find out until after you're dead. Right? You can hope and hope, and then you'll find out. That is, if there is a heaven, you'll find out. And if there's a continuity of consciousness, then you have a chance. Right? The materialist believes that you're terminated, that you'll, you know, lights out, you achieve the third noble truth, cessation of suffering and the causes of suffering just by dying. But they don't know whether it's true or either. They don't know, they don't know that. There's no empirical evidence. There's nothing, nothing conclusive. So one would, might think the materialist will find out whether... His hypothesis is true only after they're dead, but the problem is they won't. That is, if they're right, they'll never find out. That's really a bummer, you know? You'll never know. You'll believe and believe and then never know. If you're right, you'll never know. And if you know something, the only thing you have any possibility of knowing is that you are wrong. Because then, I mean, if you're, you know, in the bardo, and you look back on your 75 years of being a, a you know, a a human being, and most of that is a materialist, is, oh, crap, I made the wrong bet. <laughs> and now it's too late. Oh, crap, what's coming now? Oh, no, this is bad. I didn't prepare well. And oh, crap, this is really terrible. I'm a ghost. <laughs> Which means you're physical. A ghost is physical in the sense that the ghost has a prana body. And the prana is physical, you might recall. Prana is physical, but it's not material. It's not material. And it can't be measured any more than the prana in your body thus far can be measured by scientific means. They can't. The nadis, the, the, the nodes of acupuncture, the, the chi, the prana, the, the, the nadis, the all of the, they can't get any of that. You can get it internally. You can, you, can, you can perceive them. Many, many people have. A lot of you have had a lot of experiences of prana just in the last five weeks. So that's kind of a raw deal for the materialist. The theist actually has a possibility of getting some corroborating evidence for what they bet their life on. But the materialist has only the possibility of getting corroborating evidence that they were wrong. I think that would be almost enough reason to say, I don't think I want to do that, because then I could never know that I was right. All I could find out that I was wrong, which means that I was wrong, and I wish I hadn't been wrong. That's a bummer. 
But no, the scientists, by and large, there's hardly any self-respecting scientist that is mainstream scientist that hopes to get a job or keep one that would even raise the issue, what do you think? Gonzalo, shall we study, you know, two scientists, shall we study ghosts? Shall we check, check out and um, see if there's any empirical evidence for ghosts? Uh, who do you want to, should, which one of us will write the grant to the National Science Foundation, you or me? We want to study ghosts. Um, how much should we ask for? Because I'm not sure whether it's going to be expensive or cheap. Uh, and of course, I don't know how to do it because if they're not material, I don't know how we measure them. But let's write a grant and see what happens. Or maybe if ghosts possess people, we should write to the National Institute of Mental Health. Because maybe some people who are crazy are actually demon-possessed. In which case, maybe the, the health people would. Maybe not. So why can't you touch it? Why is this totally taboo? I mean, you find, you know, you find it on the spooky channels on cable television. But that's where the scientists skip over that. And they say, yeah, that's the bullshit channel. And they skip right over it. So how did this happen that you're, you can't study it? If you do, you lose your reputation. I mean, you're, you're toast. You become a ghost to the scientific community. You are dead on arrival. You become a ghost if you suggest you'd like to study ghosts. So don't even talk about it. Oh, how did that happen? That you can't study it? Because scientists, I mean, that's the whole idea. You should be open-minded, right? Give me some evidence. Why do people, you know, check? Well, there's a very interesting history, and that's why I wanted to share with you. Really interesting. I mean, it's interesting to me. Maybe I'm the only person, but here we go. You ready? Late 17th century. Time of Newton. Time when Galileo had already come and gone, Descartes, and so forth. But then Newton came along. And as Alexander Pope said, and there was light, you know, uh, that here, here was the great Newton. And so we had the Royal Society in England. That was, the, that was the club you really wanted to belong to. That's where the great, these great natural philosophers, the really good ones in England, they belonged to the Royal Society. It sounds pretty good to me, too. If there was some Royal Society, I'd like to be a member. I don't think they'd admit me, admit me so. So... At this time, there was the mechanical and experimental philosophy uh, promoted by people like Descartes and Galileo and then, and then just, we can't say per perfected, but tremendously developed by perhaps the greatest scientist of all time, Isaac Newton. Many people believe he was. But the, it's a mechanical, and that is the whole view of the, of the physical universe is it is like a great big clock. And they're all Christian, so they believe there's a clockmaker. That's God, of course, so therefore understand the, the clockmaker by way of the clock. Understanding the clock, but it's a mechanical Mechanical, the universe is a great big machine, right? Created by a benevolent, omnipotent creator. And then the way to understand that machine is by making precise observations like Galileo did with his, his telescope. But the real, the real, you know, the big thing is experimental method. You not only observe, but you work with it and you, you run experiments. So this was it. Mechanical philosophy, experimental method. And the experiment, both of these, of course, are totally external. They're extroverted. They're looking into outer space, external space. Right? There is no internal space of the mind. And so, Thomas Spratt, in 1663, uh, well, there was a concern at this time, 1663, so Galileo made his first public, his published story messenger in 1609, so, you know, not long after that. There was a concern, they're all Christian. They're all Christian. Uh, we may save a little bit late here, because this story is just too good. It's too good. Um, all these natural philosophers, these pioneers of modern science, the great ones, they stand like towering peaks. They're all Christian. And now they're promoting and really developing this mechanical philosophy and this experimental method, but they're feeling very uneasy. And that is, they wanted to make absolutely certain that what they're doing here, that God would be smiling upon them 
and that it would be okay, that it would really be compatible with their Christian faith. Because bear in mind, if you screw that up, you can go to hell forever. So the stakes are pretty high in their view. You, know, you don't want to go to hell. And so they, they suspected that maybe this was undermining the one true religion. And that, of course, was Christianity. So in 1663, Thomas Spratt, Thomas Spratt, he was an English clergyman. An English clergyman. I think that's really delicious. He was an, he, Thomas Spratt was nominated for membership in the Royal Society. Of course, they didn't even have, even have the word scientist back then. They were natural philosophers. So a clergyman, theologian, natural philosopher, yeah, next door neighbors, no big deal. So he was nominated for membership in the Royal Society with the provision that he would write a history of the society, which wasn't very old, so that could be easier, in its defense against its religious detractors, because there are already some religious people that saying, we don't like what you're doing. We think that might be, net, that might be, you know, Galileo got house arrest, so clearly there was some resistance. You're threatening, you're maybe encroaching on our turf here. We don't like the implications of what you're doing. This could be dangerous. You could be really getting into trouble here. And they wanted to have a staunch defense to these detractors, you know, to show that what we're doing is totally, pardon the word, kosher. It's okay. It's okay. Don't worry. And we're going to show you how this mechanical philosophy, the whole world's a, a big machine, and our experimental method, which is very empirical, drawing on the physical senses with technology, that this is completely compatible with, with Christianity. And so they gave it to Spratt. He was Thomas Spratt. You want to get into the Royal Society? Good. Then you're a clergyman. Write a defense for what we're doing. That everybody can read and say, okay, science and, and Christianity, they're chummy. No problemo. Okay? So, in his work, The History of the Royal Society, published in 1667, so he took a good four years to do it, he openly declared that the, the principal purpose of the mechanical experimental philosophy was to acquire power over nature. And this endeavor was focused on matter. So that was very explicit. He was making observations. That's a sound observation. This was very much about gaining power over nature. Uh, and it's focused on matter, of course. It's all external. And furthermore, he argued that of all pursuits, such scientific research was most likely to engender a spirit of piety, perseverance, and humility, the hallmarks of Christian virtue. In other words, this is a very religious act here. Okay. Thus, science, what, we, what they called natural philosophy, we call science, could offer sanctuary from the, theological disputes. That is, when theologians are just bickering among themselves, science could come in as a mediator and solve the problem. Because it's, you know, empirical. I guess we're real evidence, rather than just yak, yak, yak. So it could offer sanctuary from theological disputes as well as present its own brand of sanctification. It would have its own authority, its own credibility. In his view, Thomas Spratt, the Protestant Reformation, he was a Protestant, of course, and the new philosophy of nature had this in common. Each prized the original copies of God's two books, nature and the Bible. So the book of nature and the Bible. And they're both created by, they're, they're both authored by the same person. So how could they possibly be incompatible? It's really not possible at all. One author, he's not going to, he's not, God's not going to contradict himself. He said his words in the Bible, and there's, a cre there's the creation that he created. They've got, to be they've got to be compatible. How could they not be? And they both, and both, the natural philosophers and the theologians, they both prize both. You have to, if a theologian, you have to love God's creation. And if you're a scientist, you have to love the Bible, because they were all Christian. So, while intent on bypassing, what they both want is they want to bypass corrupting subjective influence of scholars and priests. Because bear in mind, they had an extra grind against the Roman Catholic Church. 
They're Protestants, right? So it looks like a good united front of the good Protestant theologians and the scientists. And most of those scientists in England were Protestant. So, but now we get to the crux of the matter. Invisible beings. Now this is kind of a thorny problem for these natural philosophers. Because we look at these magnificent laws of Newton, the three laws, and it's so orderly. You know, it's just, and it's mechanical, and it's, it's chunky things bumping into each other. And it's mathematically so elegant. And it's all physical. All the interactions are physical. Descartes pointed this out, that in the whole physical world, the only causality is physical things bumping into physical things. And there are only two exceptions. There's Descartes. Everything is physical in this mechanical view. All the causal relationships are all physical-physical, with, with two exceptions. God intervening, responding to prayer and doing his thing. God, of course, they're all Christian. He was, Descartes was a devout Christian. And then the other one's the human soul. The human soul, by which we can be morally responsible for our behavior. The human soul isn't the brain, it's not physical, it's, it's, your, immortal, it's your, your mortal soul. So that's not physical, and, and the Holy Spirit's not physical, but besides that, it's a great big mechanical world out there. Okay? So it looks like we kind of have a pretty clean shop, just two exceptions, God and the human soul, but besides that, nice and neat and tidy, a disenchanted universe, running to, according to these orderly laws. Why were they so keen on that? Because there was a great passion behind this. And this is where the plot really thickens, where I just get, start getting tingly. This 16, what, 1667? Well, that's not quite in the middle of, but that's deeply entrenched in a period from 1450 to 1750. Remember the dates, 1450 to 1750. This is an era when Europe went psychotic, significantly and very broadly. It was the witch hunting craze for 300 years, 1450 to 1750. 300 years of paranoia bordering on clear psychosis and especially targeting women. Not only women, but overwhelmingly women. They killed tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands over a 300-year period. And how you got to be targeted is, number one, be a woman because they're weaker. Men fight, tend to fight back better than women fight back. They're smaller. But if a woman shows any type of unusual way of knowing, Anything, intuition, precognition, anything spooky. The, she's probably demon. She's probably possessed by an evil spirit. The devil himself, perhaps. Because people don't have those. People, we're ordinary. We see with the eyes and so forth. Good people, good, upstanding, ordinary people, they don't have clairvoyant abilities. And moreover, if a woman especially shows any paranormal ability, like she can heal people, that's dangerous. She's probably, if she can heal people, even with herbs, that's very, very dicey. What does she know? How does she know about the herbs? What is she, clairvoyant? What is she probably demon-possessed. Or if she lays on hands or do anything spooky, anything paranormal, anything of that sort, if a woman shows it, you got one chance out of a million that maybe you're a saint. In which case, good, we'll pray to you. But if you're not a saint, there's only one other option, and that is you're screwed. Because this means you're demon-possessed, spirit-possessed. And then we all know the stories about how you test that. Well, you, you kill them. And if they're killed, then they might have been innocent, but it's okay. have to break some eggs to get an omelet. 
But if they somehow survive your torture and, and so forth, then they're, then they're definitely spirit. So we know that. Catch 22. They, but this was terrifying. A whole civilization for 300 years. That who's possessed, who's not possessed. And there were many political factors. I won't go into that. But the women were these nat nat natural healers. They were the naturopaths of their day. Using herbs and things like that. Oils, herbs and things like that. The barbers, and they're all men, they had a monopoly on healing because they had the knives. They had the sharp blades. And they would do, come, do bloodletting and so forth, incredibly in a barbaric excuse for medicine. But they had pretty much a monopoly. They're all men and they're barbers. So they do barbering and then medicine on the side. You know? But when they see women getting in with herbs and that kind of stuff, that was a threat to their turf. And so they were very happy to see these knock out the competition. So it's, it's obviously more complicated than that, but I think everything I'm saying here is true. But if we try to imagine being in Europe, filthy, pestilence-ridden, plague-ridden, spooky, creepy Europe from 1450 to 1750, when, if you're a woman especially, you just, the last thing you'll ever do, if you want to cherish your life, don't show anything unusual, nothing healing and nothing spooky, because people will find out, like being in a totalitarian re regime, we have many of them, where people spy on each other and they tell the boss, you're the boss of the church. But big unions of church and state and they'll round you up and they'll interrogate you in a way that will probably kill you one way or another. So imagine this for 300 years. The history of science is 400 years. If we say Galileo, 1609, okay, it's 400 years, give or take. 300 years of this, of people, a society being petrified. Where are these, I think the word is goddamn spirits. Where are these spirits and where are they coming in next? And is anybody looking odd? Is anybody doing anything odd? Can you, and, and am I doing anything odd? No, I'm not. I'm normal. I'm, I'm, I'm normal. I don't have anything special. I can't do it. I, I hammer nails into wood. I plow dirt slowly. Don't look at me. You know. Can you imagine that for 300 years? It's terrifying. them, And they're racking up the bodies by the tens of thousands. Who can rescue this civilization from this self-perpetuating paranoia, psychosis? How about Descartes? How about Galileo? How about Newton? Saying, don't worry, there aren't any. We're natural philosophers. We're figuring out what's going on, and we're not finding any spirit. Our worldview doesn't have spirits. It's a mechanical world. And there's God in his heaven, and he blesses, and we have our immortal souls. That's good enough. Oh, by the, way, by the way, animals, they're machines because they don't have immortal souls. This is Descartes. Animals don't have immortal souls. They, they're not, they, there's no original sin. They don't go to heaven or hell. And consciousness is your immortal soul. Therefore, animals have no consciousness at all. They're just mindless robots. You can do whatever you like. They only appear to be in pain, but that's, not, that's, a, that's a charade. They, they don't really have any pain at all. So it doesn't matter what you do with animals. So, so this is the problem. There's really a strong momentum. Somebody save us from this paranoia that we've had. Now, at that point, more than 200 years, you're deep in deep doo-doo by that time. And you're looking, somebody help us out here. The church isn't doing the job because they're perpetuating the whole problem. Come these natural philosophers. They're good, devout Christians, but they got another methodology. The mechanical worldview in which there are no spirits, God outside of nature, human soul outside of nature, and then the nature itself is disinfected. 
disenchanted. And so proponents, so, asachacha, there we go. Sorry if I'm holding up dinner a little bit, a bit more. So Thomas Spratt, far from denying the, he didn't, didn't deny the existence of invisible beings, he asserted this material pursuit reinforced the philosopher's belief in invisible beings due to the infinite subtlety of parts of matter which cannot be detected by even the sharpest senses. He said, okay, they're there, but it's too subtle to be measured scientifically. With this assertion, Spratt, expressing a view common among the scientists today, established the methodological guidelines for replacing the preternatural realm of demons, spirits, and angels with a modern scientific theoretical realm of quarks, virtual particles, and superstrings. The old domain of theoretical entities was repopulated by the new. Now, proponents of the new philosophy were presented with a dilemma to support the experimental methodology of science. Many early natural philosophers affirmed the voluntarist view of natural laws being imposed upon nature from without. God did it. Yet if God were to intervene, so now well, that's fine. God imposes his laws on his creation. Why not? He's the clockmaker. He makes the laws for the clock. But there's a problem here. God, where they all believed in, they've got to, right? If God were to intervene miraculously in the course of nature, whenever and in whatever manner he freely chooses, then there would be no metaphysical grounds for empirically establishing universally consistent laws of nature. Because you could have your you know, three laws of Newton, but then God could say, I don't think so. And come in and do a miracle. Oh, crap. And then you're kind of running your experiments. And <laughs> please, no miracle. Right? We're trying to get our orderly laws together. Would please stop just a little while? I'm trying to run. <laughs> oh, crap. You know, another miracle. And you never know when they're coming. So how can you have any fun as a scientist when you think God's going to bugger up your experiment at any time by doing one more miracle where the non-physical is coming in and messing around with the physical? It doesn't work. You, can't, you, you just can't get your enthusiasm up. Because on Tuesday they work, but Wednesday God did another miracle. You know, he made that tornado go away. He, you know, he made the rain come. Uh, then you have no science of rain. You say, What's that? what next, God? And then you just go back and be a theologian. So this is really pissing them off. Another related problem remained, and that is how could scientists fulfill their central aim of controlling nature if it was still under the voluntary control of God. So they want to control it, but then God's in control of it. So now who's in control? Because again, if God can do whatever he likes, violate their laws whenever he feels like it, then you don't have any control. You have control only when God's not in control, but you never know when he's controlling and when he's not. That's a problem. So they gave Spratt. I mean, he's just trying to get entry into a men's club. And they said, by the way, solve our problems before you get into our men's club. You know. That's a pretty tough road to hoe, but he rose to the occasion. And so Spratt, in accord with much of the theological and philosophical thinking of his day, resolved both problems. Are you ready? How did he do this? Because this is not easy. He resolved both problems by declaring that God seldom or never chooses to perform miracles in times when natural, when natural knowledge prevails, that is, when science is there, then God doesn't mess around anymore. He does it only in dark and ignorant ages. So now the scientists come in, the God says, well, okay, you scientists, you're shaking over. I, I won't mess around anymore. You know? No need for me to screw around with your work. He just said, you know, he just said, I love it the way they just, God, stop doing it. Take my word for it. I'm applying for the Royal Society. <laughs> Who are you going to trust? I mean, you can trust me. I mean, I want to get in the Royal Society. 
So with this ingenious theological ploy, he assured his readers that God would not violate the closure principle, and that is only physical impinges upon physical, that was to become one of the most central articles of faith of scientific materialism. This is why the mind has to be the brain. There's a connection here. The mind has to be the brain. If the mind does anything, like influence your speech, or if you kill somebody, your mind influenced that, well, if your mind's not physical, then we're back to spirits again. If, the, if it's going to influence your act of killing, that which, and that's a physical act, it's got to be a physical thing that influences physical acting. The only physical suspect is the brain. So your mind must be the brain, because the mind clearly has causal efficacy. You decided to kill somebody, premeditated murder, you do it. But it can't be something non-physical, because how would you have something like a non-physical impinge upon the physical? It's hard to imagine. Therefore, mind must be the brain, or the mind is what the brain does, in which case, problem solved. Mm, oh, by the way, you lost your mortal soul, but don't lose any sleep over it. So Spratt maintained that the experimental philosopher has no need of miracles, for he sees impressions of God in all of nature. So no more miracles. The whole universe is a miracle. Good. Whew, that was a close one. I love this. He's so ingenious. He's a bullshitter, but he's a great, incredibly ingenious bullshitter because he's just making this up. You know, he's got no empirical evidence at all. We can only speculate as to whether Spratt was aware of the ease of moving from the statement that miracles exist everywhere to the assertion that miracles exist nowhere. Because what's an empirical difference? In any case, the omnipotent creator of the universe was now seen as having freely chosen not to intervene any longer in the world, thereby making himself, in effect, impotent. So God basically castrated himself, thank you, Spratt. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That guy's got really balls. I mean, the creator doesn't, but God, but Spratt really has balls. But he really wanted to get in that royal society. So, you know. With respect to the theological claims of God's decrees, his immateriality and eternity, Spratt claims that experimental philosophers are satisfied with a plain believing or unquestioning faith requiring no empirical evidence or exper experiential confirmation. So in other words, in terms of the, the Bible's descriptions of God, that he's eternal, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, heaven and hell, punishes and rewards. He said, well, we're natural philosophers. We just take that on blind faith. Totally unlike our natural philosophy, where it gives us the evidence. When it comes to theological issues, we are now, from now on, we're going to be satisfied. We don't need any evidence at all. None for any of the theological claims. We just say, yes. Whatever you said, yes. What's my faith? What do I believe in? Oh, yeah, okay, that's what I believe in. So in other words, when it comes to religion, we're going to be as dumb as doorknobs. Thus, he argued, Christian beliefs should be regarded as safe and even strengthened in the hands of natural philosophers, scientists. Once religion is identified with uncritical belief based upon revelation, God said so, and science with knowledge drawn from active human inquiry, the stage is set for science to begin challenging all religious doctrines pertaining to nature. With respect to the devil, we had to get to this, right? Because it's, it's right in the middle of the witch hunting era. What do you do with the devil? Because he didn't come up, you remember? There's the human soul in God, but where, where's the, where the devil go? We, could, we definitely want to get rid of him. Spratt, tell us, how do we get rid of the devil? With respect to the devil, Spratt no, has no shortage of answers. I mean, he's going to bullshit with the best of them. Spratt, again, again, assuming an authority that is normally granted only to supernatural revelation, 
assured his readers that Christianity is secure, so the devil is no longer a threat. All other spiritual entities, such as spirits, demons, and fairies, are illusions. Knock them out. And their existence in nature has been demonstrated, he claimed, by experiments. Though he did not specify exactly which experiments he had in mind. He made that one up too. There were no experiments. What, what, give me a break. What experiments? I didn't see any. But it's demonstrated by experiments. It's a done deal, scientific fact. And therefore, scientists don't need to look into it anymore. Because it's already been done. You know, in the 17th century, before Spratt. I uh, can't quite remember when, but take my word for it, they definitely proved it with experiment. So that's Spratt. Very ingenious guy. And he did get into the Royal Society. <laughs> Newton, but another interesting dude, contemporary, of course. Newton, on the other hand, did not do away with such ghostly entities altogether. Uh-oh. What, what, we're going to get the ghost back in again? And screw up all of his experiments and his laws and so forth? This sounds terrible. God becomes in, uh, uh, you know, impotent, but the, spir the spirits can do just as much damage to your, you know, to your physical laws as God could. Because they're screwing up people all over the place, possessing people and so forth. So how did Newton get around this? Because he also spent the last 25 years of his life doing much more theology than he did science. Newton, big-time theologian. Very quirky. He did not do, do away with such ghostly entities altogether. Rather, he applied a systematic interpretation of biblical references to preternatural beings. So, you ready? Now, this is a natural philosopher now becoming a theologian. Cherubim and seraphim. Remember them? Cherubim and seraphim were hieroglyphs of ordinary social groups. Okay, taking care of those. You know, like cobblers and farmers and so forth. Seraphim and cherubim, yeah, same. So take care of the seraphim and cherubim, because they're mentioned in the Bible. Evil spirits, they're there. Remember, gas, it, it, Jesus threw the Ill, evil spirits into a herd of swine? Evil spirits were mental disorders. So that was quite cunning of Jesus to take the person who was possessed by evil spirits and take his mental disorders and put them into pigs. That's not easy to do. You know. But that's what evil spirits are. They're mental disorders. That's rather familiar assertion these days. Um, and then what else? And devils were imaginary ghosts of the departed. That is, imaginary, they don't exist at all. You just dream them up. Thus, mysterious spiritual entities which were previously thought or even occasionally perceived as roaming in the objective world of nature were now quarantined in the subjective world of human society and consciousness. So now it's become entirely on the subjective side. Collectively, in society, individually, all those demons, spooks, goblins, and so forth, they're just your own neuroses. Sound familiar at all? Newton just made this up, of course. He just made it up, just like Spratt. There's no evidence, they just... They just started saying it. And then a whole bunch of other people started saying it. And lo and behold, now this is taken to be commonplace. Everybody knows. And then why, since everybody knows, why on earth would any scientist study this stuff to find out whether ghosts exist? Because Newton already said, you know, they're just mental disorders. He had no evidence for that, but, you know, why not? God's outer creation had now been cleansed of these contaminating influences, leaving only the inner being of man defiled. So you're taking all that creepy, crawly stuff for which you'd killed tens of thousands of women over the last 300 years, all those spirits that were, that were possessing them, and you take them all inside. How does that sound from a psychotherapeutic perspective? All the demons of the world, just take them inside. They're all yours now. You can own them. And then you can do a Freudian twist on that and have a ball. So it would take another 200 years before Western psychoanalysts 
would have the nerve to begin the scientific exploration of these dark inner realities. You'll notice that it's not insignificant that when they're making these kind of decisions and putting all the demons and the spirits and the goblins and goops and so forth inside the human psyche, and bear in mind, that's where the devil dwells, right? The devil's possessing all these women for 300 years, 400 years, no, 300 years. That's where the devil gets, and he gets inside your, inside your mind, possesses you. That's where the devil is. That's where the spirits come. And now he's saying all those creepy quality spirits, they're actually inside your mind. The world that he deals with is clean. But your psyche sucks. It's like a cesspool contaminated with creepy crawly, yucky stuff. And the devil's right there in the center, so don't look inside. Lo and behold, it's 300 years before the scientific study of the mind even begins. Could there be a connection there? Two quite different reasons seem to contribute to the human soul being removed from the domain of science. It was beyond the scope of science, for it was immaterial, an immaterial, immortal gift infused into man by God. Okay? Descartes said it was by way of the pineal gland that it gets in there and does things. So it's a gift from God, but it's also corrupt because it was sinful to its, to its core, wherein lurked all manner of evil spirits in the form of neuroses and psychoses, which the modern psychoanalytic tradition was eventually to classify and seek to explain. So your core is evil. That's why you have to rely on somebody absolutely outside of you to save you from eternal damnation and someone who's radically not like you at all, who was born pure, was always pure, and then took on all your sins because you're such a creep, you're such a terrible person. You're, you're ugly and disgusting and defiled to the core that therefore you should be very grateful that somebody who's totally not like you died such a terrible death so you could be redeemed and saved. Because on your own, you are absolutely hopeless. You have no chance for salvation. Zero, none. And it's all because of your mind. It's really evil at its core. And it's contaminated by all these spirits. But at least the outer world is clean. So let's all become scientists and keep looking out all the time don't look in, because you won't like what you see. Was that fun? <laughs> I enjoyed it. When we're 22 minutes late for dinner, so let's go rescue them that, you know, I have not killed you all or something terrible. Enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow.